In a democracy, we believe that everybody should have a voice. You know, the, the Constitution says the right to vote cannot be, you know, diminished or abridged. And the hope would be that we do have a democracy where everybody is able to vote. So voter suppression is a problem for the individuals that can't vote and it's a problem for the country if we don't have a democracy that is really um, ensuring our government is um, elected by the people. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams, coming to you from Southern California. I write a blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out titled How to Get Sued and the Sled. Well, according to the League of Women Voters, voting is a fundamental principle and all Americans deserve the equal opportunity to make their voices heard in our democracy. Yet over the years, various states have suppressed voters from reaching the ballot box through various methods like strict ID laws, purging voter rolls, cutting early voting, and changing dates on which you vote. Also, gerrymandering, which is defined as the way to manipulate boundaries of an electoral constituency so as to favor one party or class, has taken center stage when it comes to voting in elections. Just recently, the Supreme Court of the United States decided to take up a South Carolina racial gerrymandering case, a lower court decision that struck down a congressional district in South Carolina as an illegal racial gerrymander. The case will be heard by SCOTUS in the next term. So today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to spotlight voting. We're going to take a look at voting rights, gerrymandering, SCOTUS, and the South Carolina racial gerrymandering case. And to help us better understand this issue, we're joined today by Ruth Greenwood. She is a professor at Harvard Law School and director of the Election Clinic at Harvard. She engages in litigation and advocacy on a variety of election law cases while training the next generation of election lawyers. Ruth litigated two partisan gerrymandering cases from the trial level to the Supreme Court of the United States, Gill v. Whitford and Ruscio v. Common Cause. She has also litigated minority vote dilution claims under state and federal voting rights acts, racial gerrymandering claims, and cases alleging a burden on the fundamental right to vote. In addition, Ruth has advised dozens of state advocates on drafting and implementing independent redistricting commissions, state voting rights acts, and adopting ranked choice voting. Welcome to the show, Ruth. Thank you, Craig. It's great to be here. And what, Ruth, got you so interested in election? I tell from your accent, you might not be a uh, a native. Ah, well picked up. Yes, indeed. I uh, came to America from Australia in 2008, and I came just to do an LLM, which is a master's in law. I went to Columbia in New York because I thought, wow, New York's the center of the world. (laughs) I wanted to study constitutional law, but because it was 2008 and I was starting in August, you know, the world knew that Obama's election was coming and I was really interested in American politics. And so I I sort of said, can I volunteer? Um, And they put me down in Virginia in Prince William County which is a majority black county. And they said, well, you're going to do voter protection. And and I was like, well, what do they need protecting from? Like, I'm not (laughs) like fighting bears or something, am I? And and when I got there, there had been signs put up that said, you know, this is going to be a, there will be historic turnout for this election. And so Republicans will vote on Tuesday and Democrats will vote on Wednesday. And I I was just shocked, you know, I, I thought I was coming to the world's greatest democracy. You know, I had grown up with America exporting democracy around the world and, 
it didn't seem that it was even a democracy back then. So I became quite interested in election law, which is especially within constitutional law. And I guess at that time, I didn't realize, you know, when I, I graduated 2009, then in 2010, we see um, Citizens United, 2013, Shelby County, you know, it just sort of, I thought of myself initially as being a sort of a good citizen of the world. You know, my my friend in Australia went off to fight in Iraq and Afghanistan because, you know, we were part of the coalition of the willing and, you know, Bush was in power because of crazy election laws and, and Bush v. Gore in 2000. And so I just sort of had this like, hey, you know, American democracy needs to be improved. And then now, you know, I've got married, I have kids here, I've become a citizen and now, it, you know, it feels like home and I still think it needs to be improved. But anyway, that's how, that's how I got here. Well, you're improving it at the election law clinic. What what kind of things happen at this at school? Yeah, well, the thing that's really cool about doing it as a clinic is we have three or four actually lawyers who work um, on cases, but each semester we have about 15 students that also work on our cases. And when I came to the, the clinic, I didn't want to compete with, you know, my old organization, the Campaign Legal Center or one of my lawyers old organizations, the ACLU Voting Rights Project. The idea was we would do something a bit different. And I'm sort of using the fact that we are situated in the academic environment to try to bring academic ideas into the litigation and the work that we do. And then, you know, also sort of push the, the frontiers. I, I, You mentioned at the beginning that I have these two huge losses at the Supreme Court, Gilby Whitford and, and Ruth v. Common Cause. That was partly doing the same thing, you know, tr- sort of high risk, high reward litigation. If we had changed it, it would have just, you know, stopped partisan gerrymandering countrywide. But now I think I'm sort of trying to think of better ways to go about what we do. So what, what are the ways to stay out of the U.S. Supreme Court and, and, and still make change and build power for communities on the ground? Right. Well, let's give our listeners a little bit of background on voter suppression. What is it? How has it become so systemic? And why is it a problem? <laughs> well, voter suppression is essentially anything that's done to try to make it harder for eligible voters to vote. Even um, people who I would describe as the vote suppressors say that it should be easy to vote but hard to cheat. The I, I don't know that I believe them, right, on the side of easy to vote. They often will put up barriers. So just some classic examples are, you know, moving the polling place. Like back in Jim Crow, right, you'd put the polling place in the white part of town and be like, hey, black voters, just walk into the white neighbourhood to vote. Um, you know, that would suppress, you know, the ability of, of black voters to vote. Also these days they do things like they change uh, deadlines, they make it that you, uh, some recent cases, you know, out on um, tribal areas, you will often have one person go around and collect everybody's ballots and then return them themselves instead of having everybody try to find a mailbox because that can be hard to find or, you know, drive into a county seat. Whereas you can stop that and, you know, not allow third party ballot collection. Uh, You can get rid of things like early voting, election day registration. You know, there are just really innumerable ways that you can suppress the vote. And over the sort of 15 years that I've been doing this, I have seen the types of ways change, but the end result is always the same. They're trying to, you know, make it harder for people, usually people of the opposing party, to vote. Um, why is it a problem? Well, <laughs> in a democracy, we believe that everybody should have a voice. You know, the the Constitution says the right to vote cannot be, you know, diminished or abridged. And the hope would be that we do have a democracy where everybody is able to vote. So voter suppression is a problem for the individuals that can't vote, and it's a problem for the country if we don't have a democracy that is really Um, ensuring our government is um, elected by the people. Let's talk about one person, one vote, and the three-fifths compromise. 
<laughs> in terms of one person, one vote, that came out um, of the 1960s. I mean, the, the three-fifths compromise, presumably everybody knows, is just a horrible stain on the history of America, a- along with slavery and, and Jim Crow and so on. But, but you know, once we get past the, the Civil War and we have the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendments, ostensibly every sort of man is over the age of 21 is supposed to be able to vote. Um, But in reality, black men are not able to. We then get enfranchisement of women. And by the 1960s, actually before the Voting Rights Act came in, before we actually really enfranchised black men and women, the Supreme Court said that uh, people in government you know, represent people, not trees and acres. So the case that they were actually taking was a case uh, where it was something like, you know, 10,000 people in one congressional district and like 700,000 in the other. And so if you you know, today that's obviously, that sounds insane, right? Why should 10,000 people have the same voting power as 700,000 people? And so the court said one person, one vote, right? All the districts should be the same size. It was then later that through the Voting Rights Act, it meant that actual people could actually turn out and vote. And so you could actually, you could have, you know, white voters and black voters turn out at, at similar rates. I mean, that only, it really came to fruition in 2008, where we finally saw white and black turnout um, being similar. Uh, we still don't see um, Latino or Asian turnout meeting black and white turnout, though. Why is there less turnout among minorities for voting? Uh, I think it's because (laughs) people are trying to suppress their votes. So there can be intentional suppression. So things like in Texas, where they introduced a photo ID law, you know, we know that it is harder for people of color to get photo IDs. That can be because of the intersection of race and poverty, you know, so you have to go to, you know, a DMV for example, without a driver's license, right? If you don't have a driver's license, you still need a photo ID to vote. Where do you get the photo ID? At the DMV. How are you going to get to the DMV that's 150 miles away if you don't drive? That disproportionately affects uh, people of colour. But then there are also more recent things that we have seen from political science, like the timing of elections, right? Having elections not in November and not in even years disproportionately burdens people of colour and leads to worse governance outcomes for them. So, you know, one of the cases we're doing at the clinic is to try to use that political science research. We are suing the city of Colorado Springs, um, which has a non-November odd year election time, and we think that that is suppressing the vote um, of Latino voters. How do you prove that votes are being suppressed? Well, you uh, have to rely on experts in political science data, right? Let's have a look at even, I mean, in that specific case, you you need a counterfactual. You need to be like, okay, this particular practice is causing this. If it wasn't there, what would happen? And in the case of something like local elections being, um, you know, off cycle, off year, you can look at on cycle, on year elections and hey, look, the turnout, yes, it's different, right? White voters turn out at slightly higher rates than Latino voters, but that difference is small. If you then go to off year, off cycle elections, the difference is huge. Like, Malik's you know, like five times the amount of, you know, white voters can vote compared to um, Latino voters. Now, could there be many other factors going on? Sure. But a predominant one here is we can look at the timing between these two different, um, you know, circumstances. Now, the Supreme Court has also developed, you know, through its understanding of the 
usually these claims, if you think that people of colour are being denied the right to vote, you bring a claim through the Voting Rights Act, through Section 2, and there's a whole a, a test essentially called the totality of circumstances where you look to a history of discrimination. So you don't have to show that the particular policy was enacted with discriminatory intent. You know, it might be that there were other reasons why they were like, hey, let's put this election, you know, in March. But if there is a history of discrimination and they sort of did it despite the fact that there was likely to be a, a negative impact um, on a community of colour, then that can be sufficient to make out a claim under the, the Voting Rights Act. If you were to make a claim under the Constitution, you would need to show intentional discrimination. How is voter suppression rooted in history? Is it part of the argument that property owners did not want people that didn't own property voting? Yeah, I mean, when when we became notionally a democracy, you know, in you know, 1791, we only let white male property <laughs> property owners over the age of 21 vote. You know, it was extremely limited. In fact, in that case, we allowed non-citizens because plenty of the founders had not been born in America, but yet you had to sort of be white and male and own property. So it is not the case that there was some golden ideal um, that we are straying from. Um, it is, in fact, the case that we originally started out with this very small group and and everybody else was excluded, but we have slowly seen you know, ebbs and flows. So the flows include things like the 15th Amendment that enfranchised um, people of people of colour. Uh, we then see an ebb when Jim Crow comes in and despite the constitutional protection, suddenly, you know, everyone's getting beaten up if they're trying to get to the polls or they have, you know, one of the worst examples is a, a, a grandfather clause where they said if your grandfather could vote before the Civil War, then you're allowed to vote. I mean, that's just, you know, blatantly trying to stop people who were slaves or people who descend, were descended from slaves from voting. Anyway, so yeah, the, the, the country today, though, notionally through the Constitution has said that, that everybody, right, everyone over the age of 18 who is a citizen should be able to vote. There are very small restrictions in some places for people who are currently incarcerated or have formerly been incarcerated for a felony. There are some places with limitations for sort of mental competence type restrictions. But otherwise, it should be that everybody can vote. You know, one of the striking things is that if actually everybody who is eligible and registered turned up to the polls, um, the election system would melt down, right? Nobody expects everyone to turn up. The election officials don't prepare for everybody to turn up and there's not enough materials, ballots, you know, pens, machines, the whole deal, which I think is a shame. It would, it would be much nicer if it was an assumption that everyone would turn out and then maybe some people couldn't for last minute reasons. That is a very interesting point. Ruth, at this time, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Learn by doing with Practicing Law Institute's award-winning on-demand interactive programs. Developed by experts in learning design, these immersive programs incorporate the latest in research-based instructional design and technology, allowing you to try out concepts, challenge yourself, and grow your skills using real-world scenarios. With programs focusing on professional development, client-facing skills, and law practice management, you can earn CLE while you learn. Launch now at pli.edu interactive or download PLI's mobile app. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more 
by integrating with your core systems, like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com slash simple. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm joined by Ruth Greenwood. She's the director of the Election Law Clinic and a professor at Harvard Law School. We've been talking about election law. One of the things you raised before the break caused me to think a theoretical question. You know, you said that the founders were not citizens when they voted. Uh, They were property owners in white and male and over 21. When is it determined in the Constitution that people became citizens and who became citizens? (laughs) Well, so there's two things going on here. One of them is that the registration guidelines are actually governed by state law. So that that is usually where it talks about you needing to be a citizen to be um, to be able to register to vote. You know what, I, I have to pull up my uh, constitution to pull out the amendments that, uh, that gave birthright citizenship to everybody. But after that, it was clear that if you were born in the country, you were a citizen. And, and also by that time, you know, founders had been given citizenship. People were all naturalized when the constitution became effective? Effective? Uh, no, 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 I don't believe so. I, I actually haven't done a, a, a close study into the history of, of citizenship at that time, but it just wasn't a requirement that you be a citizen um, of America to vote because there were so few people who were considered citizens. Uh, it was over time, you know, with the amendments that you actually ended up with clear birthright citizenship and a way to, to naturalize. What really is the basis for the right to vote? Is it your presence here in the United States or the fact that you were born here, the fact that you're a naturalized citizen? Who is it that can really vote? Yeah, so that is uh, governed by a plethora of state constitutions and territorial, um, you know, charters and constitutions. In order to vote for president and Congress, you need to be a resident of a state. So that excludes the territories. And once you're in state, oh, and then and then sort of the constitution requires that citizens over the age of 18, you know, men, women, people of colour, all could be eligible, but states are allowed to restrict that eligibility. So I mentioned before, you know, they can restrict, for example, people who have been formally incarcerated for a felony. That's because under the 14th Amendment, Section 2 of that amendment says that you can restrict people who have been convicted of another crime. Now, my argument and the argument of many civil rights communities is that was at the time meant purely to... to allow them to disenfranchise literally treasonists from the Civil War, but it has been interpreted by the Supreme Court to mean that, yes, you can actually disenfranchise people who've been convicted of a felony. Um, But there's a lot of work to try to reverse that because that that just doesn't seem right. You know, who has a constant interaction with the arm of the state, but a person who is incarcerated or a person, you know, now out on parole and having to, to interact with the justice system? Right. Well, let's dive into gerrymandering a little bit. Can you give us a little bit of its origin and its history? Yeah, I'm sitting here in uh, Massachusetts, very close to where the original uh, district was drawn that gave the name uh, to gerrymandering. So um, Elbridge Gerry was a, a governor here in Massachusetts, and he wanted to make sure that the people he liked got elected into his Senate. And so he drew a district that curled around Boston, picking up various suburbs. And the local newspaper said it looked like Elbridge Gerry had made a salamander, which at some point became a portmanteau for gerrymandering. 
the at that time, you know, the idea was you draw a strange looking district, you can tell that it's being drawn for a nefarious reason. You know, today you, you can really hide a gerrymander in plain sight. I, I think of gerrymandering really as just being the manipulation of the boundaries to achieve a particular desired end. And so that could be, you know, partisan, right? Partisan gerrymandering is where you're trying to get advantage for one party. Uh, or it could be racial gerrymandering where you're trying to place people into districts based on their race. But, but that's, that's what gerrymandering is. And we have a case right now out of South Carolina regarding racial gerrymandering. gerrymandering. What's happening and how do you predict this case is going to turn out? Yeah, so racial gerrymandering is a really interesting cause of action because in the 1990s, it, it didn't exist until then. And it was in that year that a white voter actually out of North Carolina brought a claim. It's called a Shaw claim, S-H-A-W. And she said, I feel that you have put me, a white person, into a district where you mostly put in black people because they are black. You are using race in the way that you draw these districts. And that is an expressive harm, sort of a, a dignitary harm to me. And the Supreme Court conservatives were like, yes, this is a problem. And, and so there were these whole series of cases where they were striking down districts that were essentially overly packed with black voters. Now, in the 2010s, the civil rights community sort of reclaimed racial gerrymandering and had black plaintiffs arguing, hey, you can't pack us all into this district. So there were cases out of Alabama and, and Virginia and, and North Carolina, and the Supreme Court you know, agreed that, yeah, you can't just arbitrarily say, hey, here's a bunch of black people or here are a bunch of Latino um, voters. Let's shove them all into a district because we think that they vote the same. They said, no, no, if you are going to use race or you're going to let what they say race predominate um, when you draw a district, you need to have a, a compelling government reason to do that, right? It needs to be narrowly tailored, which is a pretty standard constitutional test. And the defense in those cases was actually Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, which was subsequently... I don't know, disemboweled by the Supreme Court in Shelby County. But these days, like the South Carolina case, the argument can be like, yes, we used race, but we were trying to comply with Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And the court is very clear that you have to do a functional analysis. You know, you need to make sure that that district is performing for the particular minority community. That's generally how racial gerrymandering claims go. The South Carolina one is a little bit different because it's going back down this old trope of, an argument that got raised in those early cases was, oh, no, no, we weren't placing all these people into this district because they're black. We put them in this district because they're Democrats. And we, the Republicans, don't want to give any more districts to Democrats. And at one point, the Supreme Court had said, yeah, good point. Yeah, yeah, it's okay to do partisan gerrymandering, but racial gerrymandering isn't okay. Um, the sort of really great thing about this decision out of South Carolina is that they said, hey, sure, you might be trying to gain advantage for Republicans, but we don't see you moving white Democrats around. You just said, here are a bunch of black people, let's move you around because then we know that we can gain advantage for Republicans. And they said, that's just as bad. The expressive harm, the dignitary harm is still there for moving people around just because they're black. And so I think it's a pretty strong case. Like it, it sort of follows all of the traditional doctrine of, of racial gerrymandering. You know, that said, the actual effect on the ground will be that there would be two districts um, that may elect Democrats out of South Carolina to Congress. And if you want my extremely cynical view, the current Supreme Court doesn't like that happening, right? They didn't want to stop partisan gerrymandering. And so Republicans went crazy with gerrymandering. I think in this case, they maybe don't like the idea that um, Republicans aren't allowed to draw their own little gerrymander down in South Carolina. And, and maybe they've taken this case to try to, you know, stop the fact that actually being, you know, two Democratic districts, but we'll see. 
Well, it's time for us to take another break. Ruth, we'll be right back. Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. Order up. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went to a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network. Available wherever podcasts are found. And welcome back to Lawyer Lawyer. I'm joined by Ruth Greenwood. She is the director of the Election Law Clinic at Harvard Law School. You know, it occurs to me after listening to you that regular people really can't have much of an effect on these gerrymandering cases and these voting rights cases unless there's a group like the Election Law Clinic and the others around the country doing the work that's needed. Yeah, I think so. You know, I actually ended up working on a case that had been brought pro se by one individual down in Virginia Beach. She was like, I think my voting rights are being violated and I'm filing a suit. But these, these, you know, cases are so complex and involved that we then sort of came on board to help her out and and eventually won that case. But you're right, we do need groups, you know, representing communities that are historically disenfranchised. This slogan um, came out of, well, originally it was from Lani Guineer, but it was used in Michigan for an an effort to try to get rid of partisan gerrymandering. It was called voters, not politicians. You know, I feel like when I do election law, people can think that it gets very partisan. But as far as I'm concerned, it is about making sure that voters have their say. And it's not about politicians picking out who they want their voters to be or deciding that, you know, they need a particular, I don't know, campaign contributor in their district or something else like that. Or even just deciding like, hey, if we have less people turn out, you know, then we're going to do better. I lived in Chicago for many years and there was this feeling that the reason there's a February election, it's snowing like crazy usually in February, is the machine in Chicago is very happy having low turnout because then they can control who their voters are. You know, it is up to, you know, people on the ground need to be out there and identifying and telling us what's going on. And so there are groups like the NAACP, the League of Women Voters, Common Cause, um, who are sort of the eyes and ears on the ground. But then groups like mine, you know, need to be there ready to jump in and litigate um, to be able to try to make change. Is it really possible to come up with a neutral district where people that live in a particular area can vote? And how does that even work with people that live in disproportionate areas like Wyoming, where there's, you know, so few people per acre and New York, where it's just completely consolidated? Yeah, you need a principle of what neutrality is. So in terms of political neutrality, the sort of history of single member district systems is that you tend to get, if you get above, you know, 50, if you get 50% of the vote, you should get 50% of the seats. That feels sort of majoritarian and, and everybody kind of understands that. We tend not to end up with straight up proportional representation, you know, in places, as you mentioned, like Wyoming, if it's 70% of the vote for Republicans, you actually tend to get more like 90% of the seats just because each seat that's won is a complete, you know, 
um, seat for one side rather than a 50-50 one. Anyway, so that there are ways to measure that. There's a thing called the efficiency gap, which measures partisan symmetry, and there are a couple of other measures. So you can say, hey, what we want to do is, um, you know, have um, partisan symmetry close to zero, and you can draw a plan so that, yeah, re- there are more Republicans in Wyoming, and, you know, there are more Democrats in Massachusetts, so we're probably going to see both of those sides have power. But they may not necessarily get, you know, veto-proof majorities in a state legislature unless they manipulate the lines to gain advantage. But then when you talk about neutrality, that can be along other sort of cleavages, right? We probably don't generally think of like, I don't know, people with long hair or short hair as being a cleavage or like men and women or, or, you know, something like that. (laughs) But we do think of race and citizenship and political affiliation as being relevant cleavages in our society. And so you can say, hey, is this being fair to people of colour? You know, and the Voting Rights Act basically says that nothing entitles to people of colour to get above proportionality, but anything up to proportionality is sort of fair game. So I do think if you start at a point of values, you can then work out a way to draw a you know, district plan or, or, or write um, a system of election administration that enfranchises people fairly. It almost sounds like it's going to be impossible to achieve. <laughs> I've been trying for 15 years and I haven't got there yet. So <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's certainly hard, I can tell you that. Um, you know, but at the same time, like, we, you know, we recently had um, the For the People Act and that was all of the civil rights groups um, were able to, you know, give their input and work with members of Congress to say, hey, here are a whole lot of ways that we can vastly improve our elections. You know, I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't think it was possible to be better. You know, there are other areas of law where I just think, wow, this is so overwhelming and confusing. I don't know how I would deal with this. But in election law, you know, if you put me in charge... I would just grab together, you know, all of the smart folk and practitioners and people on the ground that I know that care about this. And I give us, you know, a couple of weeks, we'll come up with a better system. I can guarantee it. Any thoughts about creating a model act? Uh, I mean, I have written a couple for specific things. So, for example, State Voting Rights Act, there are ways you can do that. For independent redistricting commissions, it depends a lot on how the state does things. And so you, I, I work with a lot of different groups, often with Common Cause and the Brennan Centre, to go in and talk with people in states that are trying to make change. The, the, the issue here isn't the sort of model act or the model law. The issue is that the current people who hold power are very happy with their power. They got in through the current system and they don't want to change it. And because the only other way you can go is the courts and the courts, at least federally, are a little difficult at the moment, you know, we're a little stuck. Right. Ruth, it looks like we've just about reached the end of our program. As interesting as this conversation has been, it's time for you to wrap up and share your final thoughts as well as a way for our listeners to reach out to your clinic and get involved. Thank you. Yeah, I really appreciated talking about this. Um, I... I think it's important to understand that voting rights spans what you've talked about first, right? Voter suppression, right? Participation is important. But then aggregation of votes, redistricting is really important. And then governance. Governance is really important. That's actually how you translate all of this voting power into outcomes for people on the ground. You know, that works through litigation, that works through legislative advocacy at the state, local and federal levels. Um, If people want to reach out, I would love to hear from you. The email address for our clinic is ELC, as in election law clinic, elc at law.harvard.edu. Ruth, it's been great having you on our program. Thank you very much. Thank you, Craig. Well, here are a few thoughts about today's topic. This is an extremely complicated area of law. Definitions matter. And as you can tell, lines matter. So if you really are interested in a topic like this, dive into some of the clinic programs at Harvard and other law schools around the country. Attend a class. Get interested in this because it affects your rights and it affects everyone's rights. If you don't vote, 
you lose. Well, that's it for Craig's rant today on this topic. Let me know what you think. If you like what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts, your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com where you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Please join us next time for another great legal topic. Remember, when you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.